Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Dina Mangiamelli. Dina, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much, Stacey. It's great to be here. So you did send me your your bio, and it is so long and so in-depth and amazing. I just, I'm fascinated by all the work that you have done, and I'm wondering if you could share with us a little snippet of what your history has been with animals and animal welfare. Sure. Well, thank you first for your kind words. Um, I am a veterinarian. I'm actually a forensic shelter veterinarian. So I have a degree in veterinary medicine. I also have a master's degree in public health. And um, after I had been out in the world working with animals and people, I went back to school and got a master's degree in forensic science. And I did that because um, I kind of specialized in shelter medicine, and I am an expert witness in animal abuse cruelty investigations, and I thought that forensic uh, additional information for me and background would be helpful in crime scene investigations and help me on the stand in court cases to be able to really take the case home on animal abuse and cruelty. So I, uh, that's my educational background. My training and experience, I was trained in shelter medicine as the chief veterinarian for the city of Los Angeles, Department of Animal Control, in the late 90s. And I recently have published a best-selling book called Stray, A Shelter Veterinarian's Reflection on Triumph and Tragedy, which depicts many of the experiences I had working with the staff at LA City and rescue groups and the community to save animals and to try and create progressive programs that we see in shelters today. My veterinary career at this point is I have a veterinary consulting business where I go into animal sheltering agencies and perform operational assessments where I will work side by side with animal care staff, veterinary staff, and we work to customize programs for shelters that allow them to create the best humane care for animals while making sure that we practice safety for staff, which is very important for me uh, as a person who's worked in shelters, knowing some of the dangers there. And I also, like I said previously, am an expert witness against animal cruelty, and I do a lot of dogfighting investigations uh, with prosecutors across the country. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. And some of my personal interests are I am a vegan triathlete, so I'm very interested in nutrition and fitness, and so that is kind of my release from all of the other work and some of the stress associated with working with animals in some of these situations. Phenomenal. When you were younger, how did you decide you wanted to be a veterinarian? Well, I think many of us who loved animals always said, oh, I want to be a veterinarian. Um, I was very fortunate. My mom was a registered nurse, so she had a science background, and she really encouraged me to continue to do things with the sciences. She would 
by models for me to build that were dog anatomy, horse anatomy, all sorts of things. And uh, she encouraged me to work for a small animal veterinarian. When I was very young, probably in ninth grade, I started working for a veterinary hospital. And I worked there probably for six years or seven years and uh, really cemented in my brain that I really wanted to do this. And I always had my own personal pets, but I really wanted to be a veterinarian. And I loved the science and medicine part about it. And um, I just followed through and worked hard and ended up in veterinary school. (laughs) So let's uh, touch upon your time in L.A. Back in the mid-90s, things were a bit different than they are now. What was it like back in 1995 at the city of Los Angeles Department of Animal Regulation? Well, things were quite different. And I could say it probably was at one of the high points of pet overpopulation when I entered the animal sheltering system. And I had no background in working in animal shelters. There were not specific programs in veterinary school that were tracks for shelter medicine, for veterinarians, or anything of that nature. So when I came on board at LA City, my trainers were the wonderful staff that worked at LA City, the registered veterinary technicians. Many of them were foreign veterinarians who had not yet uh, become certified as veterinarians in the United States, and they were working in the capacity as RVTs or registered veterinary technicians. So they were a wealth of knowledge and assistance to me. The uh, animal care staff taught me everything I needed to know about humane animal handling situations I never would have imagined and was never trained for in veterinary school. The level of species diversity that we saw in the shelters was amazing from dogs and cats to you know, reptiles, equine, hedgehogs, you name it, we saw it. It was very unique in the city of Los Angeles because we had six shelters. And at that time, we were impounding around 80,000 animals per year. I was the only veterinarian on staff for those six locations. And I truly believe it's the reason that we became such a close family and such a tight team is because we depended on each other for communication. Remember, we didn't have Facebook or anything like that. I wore a pager. I didn't even have a cell phone. I had to, I had to stop when I was driving and run to a payphone and call one of my technicians when they needed me. But that was how we communicated. And it was an under, it was very understood that if they were ever in a situation where they needed a decision now, I would I was always immediately there for them. And I think that made a big difference because we trusted each other and we knew that we would always be there for each other. But the pet overpopulation situation was severe. And of course, with that came high euthanasia numbers. And in my book, I do talk a lot about that because it was uh, kind of a centerpiece of what we had to deal with emotionally, physically, humanely. And um, it, is, it, it was a struggle. But many of the programs we instituted were the foundation to get us to where we are today with such lower euthanasia numbers. Our early age spay-neuter program, which was unheard of, every animal was spayed or neutered as early as eight weeks of age. And we took a huge risk doing that. Some of the veterinarians that were involved in that, that helped us with that, and we took animals to at their veterinary hospitals, 
They were at risk for their licenses being revoked. They were threatened by that. And uh, even some animal rescue people thought that it was not appropriate and it was torturous to do this to young animals. But when we explained to them the actual procedure and how it was easier for these younger animals to recover faster, all of the uh, advantages, number one, which was they never even had one litter, we knew that we weren't going to see immediate change. But in about two or three years, those numbers dropped dramatically. And now we really reap the benefits of that with lower numbers coming into shelters. So I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of uh, working um, in that era and working through and trying to support staff as well as trying to get manageable populations and communities. Yeah, the one thing that I find is so interesting is that we don't even understand the true impact of the spay-neuter before adoption. I mean, people think, oh, well, it helps, but some shelters still don't do it. And it's so critical that your organization does spay-neuter before adoption because I feel like if you don't do it and you do everything else, you're still going to be overpopulating in your area. Um, Oh, there's no doubt. Yeah, and I, I, so I think that, you know, if there's a first step anywhere, this is the first step that that you need to do, which is focusing on getting spay-neuter before adoption at every facility, you know, in your region. Well, and that's so interesting that you say that because when, through my consulting business, you know, I, I work with shelters that are very large, like LA City, six shelters within their entire department, and then some that are very small that are one shelter that's smaller than the smallest shelter at LA City, for example. And when you, when I come into those locations, my job is to get some of these foundational programs started. And it's great to say you need early age spay neuter, but you need to figure out how these small agencies can incorporate them within their budget, their staffing, their physical constraints of their facilities, all of these things. And I really enjoy doing that because it's so rewarding. And if you take the time to work with them and speak with the line staff to understand what some of these issues are for them, you can create these programs. So many facilities say, oh, I can't do it. It's impossible. No, we just need to sit down and figure out, yes, we might have to change how you impound animals, how you adopt animals, where they're located. We may need to start a spay-neuter outsourcing program with local veterinarians, and we'll show you how these programs work, which is what we did in L.A. City because we couldn't possibly handle it with doing all of our spay-neuters in-house. Those are things that are possible and not so difficult to set up if you're just willing to give it a try. So um, I think you're right. I think that is one of the most important aspects of adoptions through shelters, that spay-neuter is crucial. The Community Cats podcast is now getting over 3,000 downloads a month. The word is spreading, and we have a fast-growing listener support base. Would your business want to be a sponsor of the show and help us to continue our programs? To find out more details, please go to www.communitycatspodcast.com sponsor. Does your organization not have a clear vision of what its goals and objectives are? Does it seem like everyone on your board has a different idea of what you should be doing and how to do it? Well, I can help you with a visioning workshop. I offer affordable, quick and painless strategic planning services for a small organization. I can even offer my services virtually. Are you interested? 
Just reach out to me at Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at communitycatspodcast.com. One thing you just brought up there is almost a, a fear of change. And then also the whole concept of problem solving. There's no roadblock. You sound like you are very optimistic and say, okay, let's give ourselves a goal and then let's chart a path to reaching that goal. And there is a path. We just have to figure it out and find our way there. But there's always a way to get there. And that sounds like that's the mentality that you have, where some people sometimes feel just like it's a brick wall right in front of them the whole time. Well, and maybe sometimes I come off a little bit too passionate about it, but I'd rather be that way than the other. But I, I kind of would like to share a story with you. I went into a facility that had multiple shelters, and um, sometimes I will come in and we'll do the assessment. We'll create some new programs. They'll tell me what they need, and we'll, you know, we'll work it out. But um, some of these agencies will then take my recommendations, implement them, and then bring me back in about six or nine months so that I can do an assessment to see if those changes really were effective. And one of the facilities that I did that, um, we started out and sometimes I come in and I'm looked at as the bad guy because I'm kind of the auditor. And Mm. they think that, you know, I'm going to be tattling on them or saying all these terrible things. And within a couple hours, which is always my goal, is to get them to understand Tell me what you need because I am your conduit. I can get these things for you because I'm going to recommend things that will make your job easier, safer, and you're going to enjoy your job more. So they start opening up. We start finding out all the details that are constraints instead of just walking and say, these are the programs I use everywhere and this is what we're going to do. You can't do that because every facility is different. So I went in, made the recommendation, came back eight or nine months later, and I pulled up to the facility, and it wasn't open to the public yet, and I had four or five of the staff standing at the locked gate saying, Dr. Angelelli, you've got to come in. We've got to show you what we did. I was so thrilled. I'm like, you, you got it. You reached the point where you understood that it's so rewarding to get something done and see everything come through the way you want it to, and that is just to me, that's that's my objective when I go somewhere. And that's why we're there. I mean, I've, I've worked with over 80 different groups and helping them establish uh, trap new to return programs and work on fundraising for those groups. And it's just, it's so much fun when they say, you know, I never would have done this unless you had brought it up. And now that I've done it, I don't understand why I haven't been doing it for so long. And, you know, it's just, it's so nice just to have them, you know, acknowledge the efforts, but also to see the change. It's just nice to see the growth. It is a pleasure. And it also brings a lot of energy. And and I love it because it means so much of this is happening all around the country. You know, it's not just something happening in your own backyard. It's it's all over the country. Is that confidence yep. in them to me is something that I know now is going to continue with other aspects of their job. So it's just stimulating that, bringing that confidence, you know, up to the surface, and now they're good to go. Right. The willingness to try something new is it's not so scary anymore. So one other thing in March uh, on the Community Cats podcast, we are focusing in on microchipping madness month. And I just was wondering what your experience has been with regards to microchipping from back in the mid 90s and all the way through. You know, we kind of take microchipping for granted now almost because in the 90s, we were scanning for microchips. 
but we weren't implanting microchips. And I will tell you that it was extremely rare on an animal that was impounded into the shelter to identify an animal as a microchip. It was almost unheard of. It was, you know, a celebration if an animal had a microchip. And, you know, now it's absolutely the norm. And most facilities are microchipping as part of their adoption package with, you know, spay-neuter vaccinations. And so it wasn't something that we utilized to reunite uh, pets with their families. And because of that, the redemption rate was extremely low, which in turn contributes to pet overpopulation in the shelter and contributes to euthanasia numbers. So when we talk about all of these things individually, they are very important. But when you put them together, early age spay-neuter, microchipping, the results from that are amazing in reducing pet overpopulation and reducing euthanasia numbers. And, you know, today with the, I would say, pretty much mass global microchipping, people have been reunited with their pets from far distances. The uh, registration with people and their pets has just been phenomenal, and it has been groundbreaking like spay-neuter and early-age spay-neuter has been. One priority phrase that I've heard you mention quite a bit is the the phrase of uh, safety first. And I know you're probably talking quite a bit about dogs, but as you are going into these facilities and advising organizations on protocols, safety measures, there certainly are tips with regards to cat handling in cages, but then also as these organizations have their community cat programs, are you advising them in those areas too? The safety is safety with all animals, and that does not exclude cats at all because, of course, as you know, and many of your listeners know, uh, feral cats are not easy to handle, especially for people who are not used to handling that type of cat. I also, within my consulting business, have uh, training programs and travel around the country and train animal care staff in animal handling. And we have a foundational program. And in that program, we not only talk about dogs and cats and handling for them, um, but we also talk about all the equipment that's used in shelters and how it's supposed to be used and how it can be used safely. So many of the cats that come into shelters that are feral, many people bring them in traps, of course. Staff need to understand how to move these animals from one location to another in the shelter and reducing the stress for these animals. And when you think about it, they have to be able to transfer a feral cat from a trap to a housing situation in the shelter. And that has to be done humanely. So we teach them about using different forms of equipment, different techniques of transferring that are very gentle. Um, we talk about the feral cat dens, and the, which is another wonderful piece of equipment that is uh, one of my foundational uh, improvements in shelters like the spay-neuter and the microchipping. Because these feral cat dens allow the animals to get away within a cage when they're afraid, when people are walking by to make them more comfortable, but it allows the staff to keep their areas cleaner and be able to enter those cages safely by um, encapsulating that feral cat in the feral cat den and taking, removing the den, cleaning the entire cage space, where before many agencies just were not properly cleaning those enclosures 
because they couldn't get the cats out without creating hysteria, stressing the animal. And my training and, and what most people want in a shelter is for every animal to be in a clean space with food and water and with the least amount of stress as possible. That's the objective. So working with these animals and making sure staff are safe is important. If a staff member is injured, that's one less person that's there to take care of the animals. Now, other staff have to take up the slack and work extra hours or fill in for that position that's been injured, whether they've been bitten or scratched and they're off duty. Um, now that person becomes more tired. That person has a higher probability of being injured. So the cycle continues. So our objective is, of course, we don't want people injured. We want to make sure that staff is up to the level that they should be so that every animal receives the attention and care that they deserve when they're in the shelter. So training and safety is very important. And we haven't even talked about animal control officers and the challenges and safety issues they face getting in and out of their vehicle, out in the public. They may have to rescue animals from difficult uh, situations that put them in danger. It's just a myriad of uh, opportunities for injury that we want to make sure that staff are always thinking about prevention and humane care and handling and safety. It's a, a huge, huge endeavor, and there, there are risks at every turn, but it sounds like with the right preparation and training, then you'll do a lot better for, for your staff as well as for animals. And you were sort of leading in there a little bit to, you know, in general, overall wellness and care for your staff, for your volunteers to make sure that they don't get physically and emotionally burnt out too, because when you're tired, you also tend to make mistakes or you try to rush. I, I hear a lot of folks actually out trapping and they're like, I was rushing and so I was trying to get this cat from here to here, and I rushed it, and the cat ended up bouncing around inside my car and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's if you don't take care of yourself, you're not able to help anybody else. And I think a lot of that as well is that when you are confident in your training, your animal handling, your knowledge of how to work with the equipment that you have, you not only become more efficient at it and better at it, but you're not holding back to do a task. You want to get it done. You know that you can do it. And that makes a difference because there is so much happening in a shelter. You need to move from task to task with expedience, safety, and always the thought of humane care and handling. And that only comes with that level of confidence of the training and knowing your equipment. And I, I just think that is just so crucial. So, Dina, if folks are interested in finding out more about your consulting, the work that you're doing, and your book, how would they find out about that? Sure. Um, I have a website where folks can uh, gather all this information and even uh, purchase the book. And my website is uh, www.drdina.com, and doctor is spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R, and my first name, D-E-N-A. So drdina.com. And if they'd like to send me an email or if they have um, some issues that they'd like to discuss with me or they think that a sheltering agency might be interested in uniting with me to create some programs or to do an assessment of their facility, they can contact me at contact at drdina.com. That's my email. That's great. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Well, I just want to thank everyone for the work they do with animals um, as a lifelong career in animals. I know that there are 
stress levels that can be involved in it. But the bottom line is your compassion for animals is so greatly appreciated. And I think if everyone could just work together, which I think is happening, that the animals are going to benefit so much. And I'm so proud of animal control for their ability to work with rescues and for rescues to understand how animal control works. It's just exciting to see what's happening in the future and how animals are benefiting from all of our knowledge and progress. And thank you all. I know. I just can't wait to see what happens over the next 10, 15, 20 years. We've done so much over the last 20 years, and I'm just thrilled and excited to see what will change over the next 10 or 20 years, because I think that we will be even better than where we are right now for helping all of the animals in our communities. Well, thank you, Stacey, for um, bringing all this to light um, by doing these podcasts, and I'm sure your listeners greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you again, Dina, for agreeing to be a guest on my show, and I hope we'll have you on in the future. Well, anytime. I'd love to do it. Thank you, Stacy. Want to learn more about grants? Register for Grants 101, a Community Cats podcast webinar on March 30th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Learn the ins and outs of writing grants, how to track them, and how to do follow-up reports. This is a perfect educational opportunity for a small organization looking to develop a strategic grant writing program as a fundraiser. Go to communitycatspodcast.com and click the link on the homepage to register. After registering, you'll receive a confirmation email containing information about joining the webinar. That's Grants 101, a Community Cats podcast webinar on March 30th at 2 p.m. Ah!